The Spectator magazine combines incisive political analysis with books and arts reviews of unrivaled authority. Subscribe today for just £12 and receive a 12-week subscription in print and online, plus a £20 Amazon gift voucher, absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher. Hello, I'm Sam Holmes and welcome to Spectator Out Loud. Every week, a few of our favourite writers read their pieces from the latest issue. This week, we'll hear from Kate Andrews on the NHS waiting list crisis, Kevin Hurley on the impact of demonising the police force, and Lawrence Bernstein on the secretive world of speech writing. First up, Kate Andrews. Before the pandemic hit, NHS England waiting lists were at a record high of 4.4 million. Three lockdowns later, they've risen to six million, an unacceptable figure for a Tory government which has spent years trying to rebrand itself as the party of the NHS. Boris Johnson's decision to break his manifesto pledge and raise taxes was directly linked to the idea that the money would first be funneled into the health service to fix the backlog. So can he now deliver for patients? When Health Secretary Sajid Javid announced his elective recovery plan in the House of Commons on Tuesday, he said that the waiting list would start shrinking by March 2024, though he stressed that the numbers will rise before then. By how much? Estimates float around, but the NHS modelling has been kept under wraps. The spectator has seen the models on which the recovery plans have been based. The optimistic scenario shows that, by March 2024, the waiting list would stand at 9.2 million, falling to 8.5 million by 2025. The downside scenario shows the list peaking at 10.7 million and easing to just 10.3 million the following year. These are pretty depressing figures, especially for ministers only now realizing how little the new tax levy, a 1.25 percentage point rise for both bosses and workers, will achieve. Increasing national insurance was a huge political gamble, sold on the premise that if the extra cash fixed the backlog, it would be worth it. This explains the row in Whitehall this week when it came time to announce what the NHS aims to do with the extra money. With the Prime Minister weighed down by scandal, it has been easy to frame such disputes as a power struggle between ambitious politicians. But in fact, Number 10, the Treasury and the Department of Health are aligned. They believe such a big injection of cash should be tied to performance and make a bigger impact on the waiting list. The standoff has instead been between the government and the NHS. There has been confusion over what was a promise from the NHS and what was a scenario. It has turned into a row over what ministers thought they had negotiated on behalf of patients and what the health service thinks it can deliver, and who makes the decisions. The debate raises questions not just about timelines and targets, but about power. Even ministers have been left wondering, who controls the NHS? And to what extent can elected politicians really call the shots over what is now one of the 10 largest organizations in the world? Last summer, when Johnson still had control of his government, he decided to raise taxes. He said he would use the money to fix social care, which so far means subsidizing the asset rich. But for the first few years, the tax revenue would go to the NHS. Behind the scenes, an understanding had been reached between Number 10, the Treasury, the Department of Health, and the NHS about what the cash would achieve. The Department of Health supplied modelling suggesting that £8 billion should reduce the waiting list to £5.5 million by 2025. 
worse than pre-pandemic levels, but better than where we are now. Then along came Omicron. Hospital caseloads barely reached a quarter of last winter's peak, but with increasing evidence that booster shots provided the best protection against the new variant, the NHS was put on full alert and brought back its military-style vaccination operation. Once again, focus shifted, away from playing catch-up to emergency services. But forecasts for the waiting list had already been slipping months before the new variant arrived in Britain. In September, when the NI hike was finally announced, ministers were given some bad news. The waiting list would have an additional million people on it, roughly 6.6 million by 2025, and another £2 billion would be needed to achieve this less ambitious target. By the end of last week, when the so-called elective recovery plan was set to be announced, the targets were unrecognizable. The NHS remains committed to delivering 30% more elective activity by 2024-25, as previously agreed, but models show very different outcomes, with NHS modeling estimating that the waiting list in 2025 will have millions more on it than expected last summer. The NHS waiting list could well be almost twice as long as what ministers thought it might be when they first agreed to the tax hike. But not everyone agrees on what the original ambitions were. The estimate of 5.5 million on the wait list by 2025 was technically produced by the Department of Health, which put some distance between the target and the NHS. It's an age-old tale of two institutions so intertwined that it becomes easy to pass the buck. When something goes right, praise the NHS. When things go wrong, blame the Department of Health. Regardless, the cash is being spent and taxes will rise in April, as will waiting lists in years to come. Another NHS model shows 75,000 people waiting a year or more for care by 2025, up from around 10,000 people estimated when the tax was first agreed. And this is probably an optimistic estimate and raises serious doubts about Javid's pledge of eliminating waits that go over this time frame. NHS officials are quick to point out that ministers have always said that the picture would get worse and waiting lists would grow, including when the tax rise was announced. It's also near impossible to predict just how high waits will rise, as it depends on how many people come forward for treatment. But forecasts exist, they just aren't shared. Perhaps there's a reason why these figures are always kept secret, to disguise just how little control the government has over the NHS. It just keeps shoveling money into a system that so often falls short of expectations. It's clear from this week's disputes that the government thought their manifesto-breaking tax hike was going to yield better results. Perhaps that was naive. Or perhaps this is proof of who calls the shots. As one source close to number 10 puts it, people joke that we're now a health service with a government attached. They have no idea the truth behind it. That was Kate Andrews. Next, it's Kevin Hurley. Constant castigation is harming the police force. I'm Kevin Hurley, and I did 30 years in the Met. The police watchdog, the IOPC, has recently released a report into social media conversations between officers. And it makes for some uncomfortable reading. Some of the comments are appalling, full of arrogance and misogyny. But... As we get ready to show our disdain on serving officers once again, I'd like to raise the question, what effect do you think this constant castigation of all police officers has? The offending messages were exchanged three to five years ago between half a dozen foolish or morally weak young officers. 
They were a small part of the successful crime-busting 120-strong West End impact team. Yet politicians from all parties, Sadiq Khan, Diane Abbott, Priti Patel, react by berating the whole force. Do they really think that will help? Do they think that Met Police officers in Bromley or Devon officers in Torquay will be better at protecting you, the public, from violent predators, paedophiles and knife-carrying muggers as a result of this permanent telling off? I served for 30 years with the police in London and I think it will have exactly the opposite effect. In fact, I know it will. Every single police officer is expected to think and work alone for the most part, whether patrolling on a bike or in a car. If they're a detective investigating crimes, the same applies. Yes, of course, we all see officers in vans or in groups from time to time, but it's essentially a solitary job and it takes a physical and emotional toll. Seeing violence on the street, day in and day out, changes you as a person. Unless you've been there in the dark, alone, facing the sorts of abuse and danger police officers encounter, you're unlikely to understand. To be a good police officer, you need a sense of professional pride. An officer doesn't get paid or promoted because he or she catches a thief or a burglar. He or she does it because they choose to do their duty. No one can make him or her diligent in the search for evidence or assiduous about recording it properly. They do the job because most still care about protecting the weak and vulnerable and want to catch predators. But goodwill can be eroded. In some cases, already being eroded. And it's the public who are suffering as a result. This continual negative and anti-police spin is biting deep. We are losing passionate and committed police officers and being left with the ones who are more likely to be less effective and more apathetic. How do I know this? Nine members of my immediate family either have been in or remain in the Met. I speak regularly to a network of serving or former serving colleagues and so I know exactly what the feelings are within. We talk every day. Many forces now have attrition rates of up to 30%. Expensively recruited and trained new officers are leaving after only three years. Can you blame them? How would you feel if you were continually slagged off by your boss? Worse still... Even more expensively trained and experienced officers, those with perhaps 10 or even 20 years service, are leaving to take jobs in the private sector. The financial service industry is luring away some of our best detectives and patrol officers these days often leave for a job in railway companies. The problem solving and decision making skills of a patrol officer are highly valued by the railways, if not by the politicians. And there's often nearly double the pay and infinitely less grief. Can you blame the cops? How would you feel if you were continually slagged off by your boss? Would it make you do a better job?
Do you really think it would encourage you to give better service to a customer if they are undiscriminatingly unpleasant to you? And now imagine that this job involves risking your life, confronting violent and abusive people, drunks with knives and drug gangs with guns. Perhaps you can see that in this environment, a drip feed of derision from above is particularly corrosive. So, if you are a politician, a journalist, or just a citizen who thinks we should do something about criminals, please think before you put the boot into the police again. That was Kevin Hurley. And finally, Lawrence Bernstein. Speak easy. The secretive art of speech writing. For many of our clients, we are a dirty secret. Phone calls regularly begin with variants of, can you guarantee discretion? But there's not a dealer, pimp, or even a Botox clinic in sight. We write speeches. Traditional taboos are fast disappearing. Personal trainers, moisturising creams and therapists are shared between friends. It is socially acceptable to plan your wedding with a professional and outsource everything from the flowers to the invitations. But the groom is about as likely to reference his speechwriter as his affair with the chief bridesmaid. Our client meetings are arranged in dimly lit pubs and distant cafes, far from the prying eyes of spouses and friends. My colleague Dolan met an Arab princess on a park bench in Battersea. Dave took notes in a lorry park off the M6. I had a very enjoyable coffee with a client preparing for his wife's 60th, until she spotted him through the cafe window and waved. 30 seconds later, he introduced me as a photographer. Many clients, of course, find my company, Great Speechwriting, through the Relax Will Write It For You ad that I've run in the Spectator's Classifieds for 15 years. Some clients are genuine glossophobes, dreading their moment in front of the crowd. Others are up against impossible deadlines. Barristers are not alone in wanting to surpass high expectations. Many just can't get started because they know the pool of jokes online has run its course. A wedding can no longer be so emotional that even the cake's in tears. Often, a client comes with a specific concern. Divorcees can struggle to navigate the maze that is flattering their second spouse at a wedding reception in the presence of grown-up children from the first. We call this challenge the Boris. A representative for the president of a large African country called to explain that he had read the script for an address to the nation, written in-house, and was pacing around his office in a state of blind panic. Could I jump on a plane that evening? Brilliant people with extraordinary ideas need to translate them from the technical into the understandable. CEOs who dazzle around a boardroom table need help because they don't want colleagues to know that they tremble at the prospect of a town hall. One, rather touchingly, asks his PA to diarise our meetings as life coaching. Another, who could probably have done with some life coaching of his own, has now asked for help with a hat trick of groom speeches. On one call I'll never forget, 
Jack, a wonderful Australian gentleman, rang from Sydney Airport en route to Nairobi. Hello, mate. I'm going to email you a bunch of notes I've made about my mum. Could you think about turning it into a speech while I'm in the air? We did just that, penning a ten-minute eulogy that wove together various aspects of what had clearly been an eclectic, eccentric and fascinating life well lived. I called him that night and the following morning to make last-minute edits. He didn't pick up, and I worried that we hadn't met his expectations. Jack called a week later to thank me for the eulogy. I asked how it had gone. Sorry, mate, I think you misunderstood. She's not dead. I just thought we'd put something on paper just in case. He called three years later to ask for a few minor edits to reflect her passionate defence of the Australian coal industry in her final years. There's no lack of demand for a great speech, but what's the recipe? The ingredients are, fortunately, no different in business, politics, fundraising, or at Aunt Dolly's 90th. It needs to be relevant. We've all sat through embarrassing, ill-judged, rambling and over-emotional speeches delivered by the drunken best men, infatuated newlyweds or over-emotional parents. We've seen the blank looks, raised eyebrows and attention drifting at conferences. That can be avoided by putting the audience first. A seminar full of techies has little in common with a gathering of potential investors. A traditional cross-generational reception in the bride's parents' garden requires a different nuance to a dinner on a stag do in Ibiza. Surprisingly, this realisation comes as a light bulb moment to many. It should be punchy and clear. Great speakers tend to deliver around 120 words per minute. We are regularly asked to look at a 10-minute draft written by a client containing 5,000 words. The never-ending story about a couple's first trip to France, culminating in him making a flawed grand gesture, may be replaced with something brief and punchy. For any single men in the room, there's a key lesson we can all take from this couple's first holiday together. You are unlikely to impress your new girlfriend by approaching the smartly dressed chap at the entrance to the Hotel de Ville in Bordeaux and asking to book the honeymoon suite. You'll notice that was written for the spoken word with ellipses denoting pauses. Remembering that one is writing a speech, not an essay, is crucial. Great content with poor delivery, something we still refer to as a Gordon, is as unlikely to work as the opposite, a Clegg. Most of all, it's important to start writing knowing what you are trying to achieve. Asking how you'd like a member of the audience to describe the entire speech in a single sentence is a brilliant place to start. For the speechwriter, the key is to ask the right questions, which means more emotion and less fact. Clients compare our sessions to therapy. They open up about frustrations and anxieties, hopes and dreams, fading memories and failed relationships. That perspective allows us to write in their voice, ideally at the very top of their game. 
with regular requests for something in the style of both Obama's, Muhammad Ali or Sir Ken Robinson. The aim is that when it all comes together, a speech they have commissioned and rehearsed is more authentically theirs than anything they could have written on their own. At a recent dinner party, a solicitor we'll call Bob asked what I did for a living. I explained briefly and he reacted with a chuckle of amusement and disbelief, a response to which I have become long accustomed. He then asked loudly and incredulously if people really pay for this type of thing. Three days later, the phone rang. Hi, it's Bob here. We met on Saturday. Would you be interested in helping me with a speech for my boss's retirement party? He paused. I assume that no one needs to hear about this. That was Lawrence Bernstein. And that's it for this week. If you enjoyed it, please rate and review this podcast on the Best of the Spectator channel and pick up this week's issue to read more great articles like these three. Thank you for listening and we'll be back with another Spectator Out Loud next week.